0: to see you all good to be back together again if you weren't with us last week because of the holiday happy new year to you praying the Lord blesses you and each of us this year we took uh, a week off if you will last week from our study of the book of Zechariah but we returned there today so if you have your Bibles uh, please turn there Uh, if you do not have a Bible you probably see one located in a chair in front of you to your left or to your right perhaps and then I'd encourage you, if you don't own a Bible, uh, you can keep that. Um, don't sell it to anyone. Keep it for yourself. <laughs> Read it every day. That's why we give it to you there. Uh, we want you to feel free. You don't have to sneak it out of here like you're stealing it. We want you to have it if you don't have one of your own. Father, we are we're ready to hear from you. Well, we're ready for you to speak your truth sort of into the foundational places of our hearts, the deep places, the places that everything else is built upon. And so, Lord, uh, that, as Christian was saying, that, that causes this to be a holy time, Lord, a time that we put aside, we separate, get all those distractions away that we might hear your voice. And so, Lord, we are inviting you to minister to us. We're Asking you to prepare our hearts, even as we do our part to prepare our hearts to receive from you. Ministered, Lord God, today, during this time, we pray in your name. Amen. 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 Well, it's been about three weeks since we've been in the book of Zechariah, so please remember, this is a post-exilic book. This is a book that was written after the period of Jewish exile, after the Babylonians had taken the people, brought them uh, to the land of Babylon. They had been there for 70 years. Now they're back in the land. Uh, we're, we're talking about 80, 100 years or so since that exile had begun. And there's that whole process of rebuilding uh, the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, plowing the fields again, planting, all of that stuff. And as we've been looking and as we've been noticing, the last two books, the book of Haggai and now this book of Zechariah, there was a a great bit of discouragement that had set in. Everybody's excited, or a lot of people are excited when the work begins, but then you got to start toiling. And that gets a little tiring, and kind of the fervor fades away, and you begin to lose your desire that you once had. And so, as we've learned, the books of Haggai and the book of Zechariah are designed to encourage the people of Israel, and a few people in particular, the leaders, And so Zechariah is a prophet who God revealed some things to to bring to the people. Haggai is a prophet. Similarly, God revealed some things to bring to the people. But two of the key people that really needed to be encouraged during this period of discouragement were Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, who was the governor or the president of the country, if you will. And those folks, kind of the direction they went is where everybody else went. And they were a bit discouraged. And so you have these Uh, two words that came from the Lord for these men and through them for the entire nation as a whole. And so remember, Zechariah, Haggai, contemporaries of one another, who ministered to the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, post-exile, post-coming back uh, from their period of exile in the land of Babylon. Now, Haggai, you remember, the way that God worked through him, Haggai, or God gave to Haggai, Four messages, four sermons, not unlike what we're hearing right now, where God said, these are the words that we're going to speak to people. He spoke those to the people. Zechariah, similarly, but different, God gave him a word to give to the people, but he did so initially through visions. And as you remember, maybe, uh, Zechariah received eight different visions that God gave to him pictures, that he would tell the, the picture, he would tell the story, and the people would learn the lesson from those visions that he received. We've looked at three of them. Today we're going to begin chapter three. We've looked at three of those visions, two in chapter one, one in chapter two. And you may remember, and it's important kind of as we, we jump into today's lesson, you may recall that those three visions all sort of went together. It, it combined to give one big message. So there was vision number one where God announced through the vision that he saw how the foreign nations were treating his people. And he was determined to respond. They weren't respond. They weren't treating him very well, the Jewish people. And so God says, I see what the foreign nations are doing, and I'm going to act. The second vision, which was the end of chapter 1, he announced how he was going to act against those foreign nations. And then a few weeks before Christmas, or the week before Christmas, we looked at the third of those visions that sort of complete that announcement in which he says, and after I do act, this is what restored Israel is going to look like. So they're treating you like junk. They're taking advantage of you. Uh, You're really struggling through this. I'm going to deal with them, and I'm going to restore the nation of Israel. And this is what it's going to look like. And you remember, that's where we talked a little bit about the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of God's Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in righteousness and peace and prosperity in the land of Israel. And so that was the first three visions. Today we come now to the fourth vision. There's eight total. Today we come to the fourth vision that Zechariah received. And this one is specifically going to be a message for Joshua the high priest. Remember, there's Zerubbabel the governor, then there's Joshua the high priest. And in this message that Zechariah receives, it's really going to be designed to encourage Joshua. But I'm going to suggest to you today that Joshua is the representative of God to the people and the representative of the people to God. And so if this is a message for Joshua, it's also a message for you and I as well and all of the people of Israel that lived in that day that may have been discouraged. And so let's read together. We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, and let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they did. They put a clean turban on his head as well and clothed him with garments, new garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by, observing, approving of these things. Now back in our study of Haggai, that's where we learned that Joshua was indeed the high priest at this time. This verse here, it mentions it again. And it tells us of this vision that Zechariah received where the main figure, if you will, or at least one of the main figures was joshua the high priest now this is in the heavenlies so this isn't an actual thing that's happening on the earth it's something that is a vision that is taking place if you will in the heavenlies and zachariah sees two key figures joshua the high priest and as you can see there the angel of the lord in verse one he showed me joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the lord notice that the angel of the lord not an angel of the lord And if you've been with us for some of our previous studies, we pointed out the significance of the difference between the angel of the Lord and an angel of the Lord. Again, you can go back and listen to one of the studies, but for quick purposes, the angel of the Lord is essentially Jesus. And so here is Joshua standing before the Lord. Now there's another standing there as well. Look at the end of verse 1. And it says, and Satan. Well, that's no fun. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him that is, to accuse Joshua. Now, that phrase there, in verse 1, it says, he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel. That phrase, standing before, is a term that carries with it officially standing before. That just happens to be standing there, and the other guy is. Standing before has the idea of standing there to do priestly service. And so Zechariah sees Joshua doing his priestly service for the nation as the high priest of the nation. And again, remember, if you break it really, just kind of break it down to its basics, the the role of the high priest was to represent God to the people and to represent the people to God. He would go between them, so to speak. He would bring the offering on the Day of Atonement uh, and the like. And so he's standing before the angel of the Lord in this way. It speaks of his role and his official duties as the high priest. Now surprisingly, notice the garments that he is wearing. The Old Testament is very clear as the type of garments that the high priest was supposed to wear and how they were to be made and what thread was to be used and what stones were to be embedded in it. It was very, very clear. You can go back, you can read the book of Exodus to kind of see the description of all that was required. And when the high priest was doing his duty, he would put those garments on. And when he wasn't doing his duty, they were put away carefully in a closet somewhere for him to take up again later the next time he had to go into the temple or wherever it was he was ministering. He's not wearing those garments, however. We see here, it says in verse 3, look down there for a second. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Well, that's, to be unex- or that's unexpected. That's not at all what we should expect. What? What do you mean filthy garments? As he's officially representing God to the people and people, the people to God. Here he is in this vision wearing filthy garments. Now, throughout the scripture there is a common metaphor that is used that refers to the garments that a person has on as a symbol of either their righteousness or their unrighteousness. We see different examples of it. And so this vision then of Joshua standing clothed with filthy garments is designed to communicate the moral guilt of both Joshua and the people that he is representing. It's to, designed to communicate their unrighteousness. If you think about it, if he is representing the people to God and you think about every sin of the people of the nation committed that has been committed as one dirt stain on that garment, and then you think of all the sin of all the people over all of the years, that's going to be a pretty filthy garment, isn't it? With quite a bit of stain on it. And it's that filth, that Joshua's garment that he has in this vision it's that filth that Satan standing there as well is accusing him of it's as if Satan is saying look at this guy what a filthy mess he calls himself a minister he thinks he is a high priest you may heard he thinks he's a Christian that kind of phrase but look at this guy he is a filthy mess Satan accuses him now it shouldn't surprise us to find Satan accusing Joshua, the high priest, in this way. And by extension, all of the people of God in this way. There's two terms used in the Bible to describe the the person here labeled as Satan. And those terms are used interchangeably. Primarily in the Old Testament, it's the word Satan. In the New Testament, it's primarily the word devil. But Satan and devil, we're talking about the same individual. In the Old Testament, the word Satan is is our English pronunciation of a Hebrew word, which sounds pretty much the exact same as Satan. And it's a word which means adversary or one who withstands, one who comes against us, adversary. That's what the word Satan means, which is commonly how it's translated in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, which was written primarily in Greek, it's translated as devil. It's the Greek word diabolos. You've probably heard that term or, or seen it before. And it's a Greek word which means one who accuses falsely or one who slanders. And so when we're talking about Satan or the devil, same person or same being, we're talking about the one that is our adversary, the one that accuses, the one that will slander us because Satan is the adversary of God's people. And we learn some things about Satan. And remember, our Bibles aren't written like, like a topical textbook, And so, you know, you don't go turn to chapter five to learn all about Satan. We pick things up throughout the Bible as we're studying our Bible. This is what we learn about Satan, the adversary of God's people. John chapter ten says the thief. Now, if you read the context, it's referring to the devil. It says the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's that's the goal of the devil is to steal to kill to destroy to rob you of all that God intends for you to kill you essentially and ultimately to destroy your soul that's what the devil seeks to do earlier in that same book John chapter 8 actually the devil there is referred to as a murderer and he has been such from the beginning i'll read the passage it says you are the fa- you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning, now notice it goes on, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. John 8 goes on and it adds, you can read it, but it adds that he is a liar as well, a deceiver, meant to, uh, one who seeks to deceive others. And so we have the devil, the adversary, the false accuser, the slanderer, one whose goal it is to lie, to kill, to steal, to destroy, a murderer, from the beginning. These are some of the things we learn. Now, here's the interesting thing about this passage in Zechariah, as we have this vision of the devil. In this instance, he's not lying at all. He's telling the truth in this instance. Joshua's garments were filthy. And as they represent the righteousness of Joshua and the righteousness of the people of Israel, the people of Israel aren't righteous and weren't righteous. Joshua wasn't righteous. Sinful indeed. Joshua, as in the vision, was a filthy mess, and the people of Israel were a filthy mess. One commentator I read he said this when Satan talks to God about you, he tells the truth. When he talks to you about God, he tells lies. And so here, Satan is telling the truth to the Lord about Joshua. He was indeed a filthy mess notice from the passage we read and if you want to keep skimming as I speak you'll notice that nobody questions his accusations look at this guy he's a filthy mess nobody jumps in for Joshua and says, no he's not a filthy mess he's fine nobody ever does they all agree everyone Joshua agrees Joshua doesn't am not a filthy mess the Lord doesn't disagree everyone agrees yes he is a filthy mess no one tries to refute the accusation because there, are, uh, there is no way to refute the accusation. Joshua and the people that he represented, they were sinful and they were unworthy. And in reality, they truly had no right to come into the holy presence of a holy God. And so Satan here is saying, speaking the truth, at least in this instance, is speaking the truth encouraging message not yet but notice the beauty of this vision there's one that stands up for joshua there's one that comes forward and intervenes on joshua's behalf look at verse two while satan is busy accusing accusing joshua we read that the lord the angel of the lord intervenes on joshua's behalf it says and the lord said to satan the lord rebuke you O satan the lord who has chosen jerusalem rebuke you is not this a brand brand that is plucked from the fire? When, I think it was Charles Wesley, it could be John Wesley, but I think it was Charles Wesley. Some of you know that name, wrote many of the hymns, 1700s, Methodist Church. When he was about six years old, the house that he lived in with his family caught fire and was burning, and he was trapped in his uh, upstairs room, he was on a second floor room, you know, those days, uh, say what? John, John Thank you. <laughs> and so, firemen or, I don't know, people, the neighbors or whatever, they came, they rescued him out of the window, and he was safe and all of that, and he, uh, later on, they took a piece of the, the charred wood, and he kept it. And with the Bible, this particular Bible verse, a brand plucked from the fire, that's what that charred wood is, a brand. And he always remembered how God preserved his life and was going to use him in his life. And he used this particular verse. So if you know anything about Wesley, like this gentleman does, that's where it comes from. Joshua had a great adversary, Satan, that had come against him. But notice this, this is so sweet. He had an even greater advocate, that stood up for him, and it was the Lord himself. And the passage there says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Let me me put it in more like Philly kind of language. What the Lord is saying to Satan there is enough. Enough with these accusations. Make it a little more harsher. Shut your mouth. I don't want to hear another word come out of it. That's what it means when it says, "The Lord rebuke you. You may speak no longer. Stop with the accusations. I, I think it's just fantastic. He says, "I don't want to hear another word come out of your mouth." I think there's a few important points that come that come here that we kind of want to take a little bit of side to consider. The first thing is what this vision reveals to us is the reality of spiritual warfare. There is a spiritual battle, warfare that is going on, it takes place in the heavenly realms that we're probably not aware of on the daily basis. But the reality is is that it's occurring. And there are plenty of examples in the scripture, not just this one and even if it was this one, that would be enough. But there are plenty of examples in the scripture to reveal to us there is a heavenly spiritual battle that is taking place as I'm living my life on a daily basis. which means as a Christian, I better focus in a little bit more on the spiritual in my life, because these battles are taking place around me, and I'm completely unaware of it. And so the first thing that we see is the reality of it. Let me give you some examples. You remember in the book of Job, chapter 2 of the book of Job, right toward the beginning of the book, we're told that after Satan went to and fro on the earth, that he came before the Lord And he began to accuse Job. Job 2, it says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God, or the angels of God, they came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro throughout the earth, walking up and down upon it. And the Lord says, Have you considered my servant Job? Now, I don't like the wording there. I'd prefer God not bring my name up before... But the way that it's actually worded is, and you've considered my servant Job, haven't you? All right, so Satan was already thinking about Job. And, And he says, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Similar setting here, where the angels of God, Satan included amongst that as a fallen angel, comes before the presence of God, and we see this battle. The book of Daniel, we read that at the time that Daniel prayed on behalf of the nation, how his prayers, the answer to his prayers, were hindered, I should say, as a result of spiritual warfare. Here's a portion of that chapter, Daniel 10. It said, he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day, this is an angel speaking, that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard by God. And I've come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. But Michael, now that's the name of one of the archangels in our Bibles. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the king of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. He talks about this spiritual battle where one angel was coming to, reveal and answer, to answer the prayer of Daniel as God instructed him. But Satan hindered him from returning, and Michael the archangel had to get involved in that particular battle. In the New Testament book of Jude, we're told, it doesn't give us much explanation, so don't ask me for it, but we're told there that that archangel Michael was contending with the devil about the body of Moses. That's spiritual warfare. Jude chapter one verse nine. When the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, and so he said, "The Lord rebuke you." But there's a spiritual battle that is going on there, and so they're just some of the many examples of spiritual warfare in the Bible. What the Bible doesn't really present us is sort of a, a clear teaching about spiritual warfare again you can't turn to chapter 5 and it's all spelled out and after done reading it and kind of thinking about it a little you got it all figured out there's some unknowns here there are however there is however some info that is presented somewhat clearly although i don't think exhaustively in the book of ephesians ephesians chapter 6 it says this paul writing he says finally be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's that spiritual battle. And so he tells us to put on the armor of God, that we can stand against those schemes, against that battle, so there's something that we can be involved with. He goes on to explain, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And therefore, because we do, therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, to stand firm. And so what we can discern from that passage, and the other ones as we put all of these pieces of the puzzle together, is there are spiritual forces of evil, and we'll call them, though the Bible doesn't use this phrase, there are spiritual forces of good. And they are in a heavenly war with one another. So that's the first thing, that that's one of the first things we can observe, just quite simply, from this Zechariah passage, is the reality of a spiritual battle. Second thing that we can observe from this passage, which I think is it's paramount for us understanding spiritual warfare, the second thing is this, God is in control. God is in control even of this spiritual battle. Remember when the Lord said enough? Don't open your mouth anymore. I don't want to hear another word come out of your mouth. Satan didn't say, who are you talking to? You can't say that to me. I could say what I want to say when I want to say it. No. Satan, shut up. You see, because the Lord is the one that is in control. I think sometimes we have a tendency, primarily because we don't really think about it. I don't think, you know, your evil intent but primarily, I think we have uh, good intentions, but we don't really give it much thought. So we have a tendency to think that, that God and Satan are opposite equals. That God is the God of heaven and Satan is the God of hell. We kind of have this mindset. That's actually not the case. If Satan is the opposite of anyone in the scripture, it would be of Michael the archangel, not of God. God's the creator Satan is and ever will be a created being, and so he's always submissive to the Lord. You remember at the Last Supper, when uh, they were just getting into "I'm the greatest of the disciples," "No, I'm the greatest of the disciples," and and all of this. That Jesus speaking to Peter, he said, "Simon," he said, "Simon Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat." I don't really know what that means. Like Tear you up, I guess it may I don't know, separate you, sift you as wheat. And Jesus's statement there, his response to Satan it makes it very clear that when it says Satan desired to sift you as wheat, Peter said or Jesus said, no, you can't. Because what he would go on to say, I'll read it to you Simon Simon behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith would not fail, and when you've turned again, strengthen, your brothers. The, the implication there is that Jesus said to Satan, no, you can't sift this one as wheat. God does allow Satan to attack and to harass the people of God, but he always strictly regulates the extent of what he permits Satan to do. And so Satan, the adversary, Revelation chapter 12, it labels Satan as the accuser of of the brethren. 1 Peter chapter 5 calls him again our adversary and it says in 1 Peter chapter 5 that he prowls around seeking someone whom he might devour. I've already read the verse about he seeks to kill, to steal and to to destroy. Because Satan knows that he has been defeated and that he will ultimately and eternally be judged. It's announced in the scripture And so his only hope, we'll call it that, is to deceive as many others as he can that they may be judged as well. That's why he's the adversary of humanity. He wants to bring as many others with him to judgment. And so we have here now this adversary of God's people. And it shouldn't surprise us. This is what the scripture shows Satan being all about. And he's opposing Joshua and he's opposing the people of God, but again magnificently. Magnificently, as we return to the Zechariah 3 passage, there's another that intervenes on Joshua's behalf, behalf. He puts an end to his rebuke. He says, enough, I don't want to hear any more. Notice the second thing in verse 2, what he says about Joshua. Again, he doesn't say, don't talk about Joshua that way. It's a good man doing his very best. He doesn't say that. The angel of the Lord never disputes the accusations that Satan is making against Joshua. Instead, he says this. He says, is not this, this is uh, verse 2, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? If I may paraphrase, and you always have to be careful when you start paraphrasing the scripture, because you could make it say something it doesn't say. So if I may here, and you can judge if you think it's accurate. I think what the Lord is saying is, look, you don't know. You don't think I know that Joshua is deserving of judgment. I'm the one that plucked him out of that judgment. He stands up for Joshua here, and he doesn't dispute Satan. He says to Satan, I'm aware, that is even more driven home by verse 3. It says Joshua was standing there clothed in filthy garments. He says, I know who this guy is. I know what he looks like. I plucked him out of the fire. He calls him a brand. A brand, if you're not familiar, it's a burnt, burning, or smoldering piece of wood. I I got a little picture of it I think we have here. You've seen that. If you had a little campfire in your backyard or uh, when you're out in the woods here, it's that piece of wood. You're not going to dust that off and use it to build a building. And if you let it sit in there, it's just going to eventually be completely consumed and done away with, turned to dust that's he says who joshua was and it's important for us in our understanding of this passage to make sure we understand joshua wasn't plucked from the fire because somebody standing there realized you got to get him out of there he's too valuable to be in there that's not why he was plucked from the fire he was plucked from the fire for one reason well two i guess because of god's sovereign grace and mercy that's why he was plucked from the fire and the reason why it's so important for us to understand that, that he wasn't taken out of the fire because he's too valuable to be destroyed in the fire, the reason it's important for us to understand that is because Joshua represents you and he represents me and he represents any child of God, that we are a people that if we weren't worthy of it, but God in his mercy and his grace chose to pluck us out of the fire and preserve us from destruction. We are that brand that's been plucked from the fire. Now, to the people, as they looked at Joshua on the earth doing the high priestly things, Joshua's garments would have appeared beautiful. They would have appeared ornate. They would have appeared significant. They would have been lovely. People would have been impressed by them. There was probably no more expensive garment in the entire kingdom, perhaps even the king's garments, than the the high priestly garments and so you can imagine and try to the great care with which they would have taken to protect and to guard those garments but in the presence of the lord even those priestly robes became nothing more than filthy rags those garments representing the righteousness or the unrighteousness of the person that wore them in the presence of the lord they appeared as nothing more, I'll borrow this from Isaiah, as nothing more than a polluted garment, is what they were. But notice what the Lord does next. is standing there in a filthy garment. Satan is truthfully pointing out that, man, this guy's a mess. He's a, fil- he's a filthy mess. Jesus intervenes. He rebukes Satan, tells him not to say another word. And then notice what goes on next. Jesus doesn't say... All right, look, you've been plucked out of the fire. No, go and stop. You know, you got to do better. You got to clean up yourself. You got to clean up your life. Get yourself to the cleaners or something like that. What the Lord does next is to tell the angels that are standing there near Joshua, take the filthy garments from him and then notice and give him pure vestments. That's in verse uh, 4. It says, remove the filthy garments from him. Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And so God here, he fixes Joshua's problems, or his problem, not by instructing Joshua to clean himself up, but by taking away the filthy garments and replacing them with new pure ones. And this, I hope you're seeing it, is a wonderful picture of the way in which God takes sinners, sinners that are worthy of judgment, and causes them to be saints that are freely invited to come into God's presence. What's he do? He takes away our unrighteousness, and he replaces it with righteousness. And the place where God has done that, there's only one place in all of history and in all of the locale of the world, is at Calvary's Hill. It's at the cross where Jesus Christ was crucified. The great uh, Bible teacher, Charles Spurgeon of the 1800s, he referred to that place as the place of the great exchange. The place where God took our unrighteousness and instead gave us his righteousness. The place where the one who knew no sin became sin so that you and I who knew plenty of sin might become the righteousness of God. And that's the place, as each of us comes there, certainly, that's the place where we have that born-again experience of John chapter 3. You remember that verse, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That born-again experience takes place at the foot of the cross. When in faith, we look at the great exchange where God put on him our unrighteousness and he put on us his righteousness. The cross is the place, again, as each of us comes there, that we become new creations in Christ. As the Apostle Paul described it in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Salvation is never a matter of us trying to clean ourselves up in order that we might be able to get into heaven. And that's how a lot of people look at salvation, is you know what, I gotta turn over a new leaf, live a good life, and hopefully God will see my effort and my heart, and will let me into heaven. Your heart, you're a nice person as we compare ourselves with each other, but as you compare yourself to God, your heart is desperately wicked. My heart is desperately wicked. And I could never be good enough to get into the holy presence of God, there has to be a great exchange that takes place where God takes my unrighteousness and he gives me his righteousness. And so salvation is never about cleaning ourselves up enough to get into heaven. It's about recognizing that there's absolutely nothing we can do to clean up our own filthiness and then making the decision instead to submit ourselves to only what God can do. Declare us to be righteous because of faith in the work of his son. And so we have this angel. says, remove the filthy garments. Replace them with pure ones. That's chapter 3, verse 4. I love Zechariah. He's standing on his side. And he says, and give him a new hat as well. He says, uh, and give him a new turban. Now the turban is specifically referring to the turban that the high priest would wear. Exodus chapter 28 tells us about it, that it was made with a certain linen. and Across the front of it, it had a... uh, like a gold um plate that says holy unto the lord separated unto the lord and so as his priestly garments were defiled so was his priestly turban as well and Zechariah throws in give him a new turban and Jesus looks at him good idea all right give him a turban as well as if it were Zechariah's idea I'm kidding a little but not too much now the vision's not over it goes on in verse 6 it says now the angel of the Lord solemnly, solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. That verse, those verses, it causes me to think that some of the accusations that Satan was making against uh, Joshua were having their impact on Joshua. That there was a part of him is like, Who am I? Why am I here? How, I can't represent these people. I can't even rep myself before, represent myself before God. And he was start, starting to feel the weight a little bit of those accusations about his unrighteousness. But Jesus responds to Joshua, promises Joshua that he, look, you will indeed continue to serve as high priest. long as you're diligent to stay obedient to me and to my ways, even if you're not perfect. You will indeed continue. Verse 8 goes on. He says, Hear now, O Joshua, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. They're, they're going to be a witness here all right, of what I'm about to say. He says, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now, remember, there's a level of discouragement on the part of Joshua. And so in an effort to encourage a discouraged Joshua, the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself, once more gets Joshua's attention. He says, here now, that's what this idea. Look at me, listen to me. And he says, oh, Joshua, the high priest. And not only Joshua the high priest, but these friends who we didn't know anything about until just now, these friends that are there as well, so that they can be a witness of these words that the Lord is about to speak to Joshua. He says, look at me, Joshua. He says, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now that word branch there, you can see it in the English Standard Version, is capitalized. In every English version where the word branch is used, every English version, it is capitalized. And that is done so on purpose that that term there the branch is a term that is used repeatedly in the old testament as a title the branch it's a title and it's a title for god's promised messiah the one again who will rule and reign on the throne of david forever i'll give you just a couple of examples isaiah isaiah wrote this he says there shall come forth a shoot or a branch uh if you a stick from the stump of Jesse. Remember, Jesse was David's father, All right, and so from the, on the throne of David forever. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots that shall bear fruit. That's a prophecy of the Messiah. You can read the whole passage. Jeremiah the prophet, he said this. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which that branch will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. And so throughout the Old Testament, you can go and find other passages as well. That branch, capital B, is a reference to God's Messiah. And so here now in this Zechariah passage... The angel of the Lord gives to a discouraged Joshua, how can I lead these people? I'm unrighteous myself. And again, the closer you get to God, the more you realize you're unrighteous, correct? As you come into his presence. Again, it's like being in a bright, shiny room, and all of a sudden you realize, man, I didn't know I had all these stains on me. The closer you get, anyway, the closer you get, you recognize it, you see it. And so essentially what this angel of the Lord here, as he's assuring Joshua, is he's saying to him, look, Joshua, I will send one to the land, my anointed one to the land, my Messiah. You're wondering, how are you ever going to lead these people? How are you going to represent these people? You're just a placeholder right now, Joshua. But the day is coming, as he's been already talking about the millennium, I'm going to send one to rule and reign over Jerusalem and to do it well. He says, I'm going to send my Messiah. The branch. He gives a second analogy in verse 8, or excuse me, verse 9. He says, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. So again, continuing with this symbolic language, you already referred to him as the branch. Here he refers to him in verse 9 as a stone, with seven eyes. It reminds us of the book of Revelation and reference to so many things that, you're like, what is that? As you try to understand. The seven eyes, it speaks of the ability to see all around or completely. You know, we say of like moms of young kids, they got eyes in the back of their head or whatever, their ability to see, teachers as well. All right. And so you have these seven eyes. It's this ability to see. And because they can see, the ability to know. And so this stone therefore has complete knowledge, complete understanding, complete wisdom. And so you have these two imageries. You have the imagery there of the branch, but now you have this imagery of the rock. And again, as you read through your your Bible, you're going to see this image over and over again. Sometimes it's called a rock. Sometimes it's called a stone. Sometimes it's called a cornerstone. Sometimes it's called a capstone. But over and over again in the Old Testament, we have this symbolism which is used to describe, and you can read the context of each of those passages that you find it, it's used to describe either the Lord himself, God himself, or his Messiah, referred to as the stone. There's one, I think, really great example that I'll turn your attention to in Daniel chapter two. In Daniel two, one second, please. If you know that prophecy... You recall that one key prophecy in that book of Daniel was connected to a troubling dream that the Babylonian king had. The king's name was Nebuchadnezzar. And he had this dream and he, it, it freaked him out and he didn't understand it. Some people wonder if he even remembered it or he just realized he was freaked out. But he brings in all of the wise men, all of the people that seem to have the ability to understand things like this. And he tells them, tell me my dream and then tell me what it means. And people are like, I can't tell you what your dream means. You've got to tell me what your dream was, and then I'll make up an answer for you. You're like, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't trust you. If you don't tell me what the dream was and what it meant, you're all dead. And Daniel's like, whoa, what's going on? Why does Everybody take a breath. And he says, oh, king, he went and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. He said, God, he's going to kill all of us. This guy's crazy. And he said, I need you to give me the dream and then tell me what it means. And God does. And so Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he said, this is what you dreamed. And you can read the whole story. It's Daniel chapter 2. But there, there, there's this image of a a huge being. And the head of this being is made of gold. And the the chest area of this being was made of silver. And the midsection of this being was made of bronze. And then the, the final section was sort of like iron mixed with clay. The feet area of this being was iron that was partly mixed with clay. So that in and of itself was freaky. Whoa, what's that? Then, and I think this is what really struck Nebuchadnezzar, because I think Nebuchadnezzar was like, that's me. I'm the magnificent being made of gold and all this kind of stuff. But then this is what goes on. Verse, chapter 2, verse 34, he says, and as you looked, Nebuchadnezzar, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces and they became like chaff or like dust of the summer threshing floors. And the wind blew them away, carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. Now, this is the fun part for me, not for Nebuchadnezzar, and for us. He says, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. But the stone, that's the stone of this Zechariah 3 passage. And so those successive world ruling empires, the head, the chest, the waist, the feet, and so on, those successive ruling empires that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt about, they were destroyed in an instant at the coming of a stone that was not made with human hands. Again, a reference here to the the Messiah. And so the word then of encouragement by this angel of the Lord that we see in this fourth vision, it comes to him encouraging him to take courage. Because, look, you, you don't think you measure up, Joshua? You don't think what the work that we are doing here in Israel is of any value? It doesn't even compare to the people of Israel that used to live here you think we're powerless against these enemy nations. They can come in and do whatever they want, whenever they want. The word of encouragement then to Joshua is that there is a day coming when God's anointed will rule over this land. And as we've seen now on a few occasions, this vision brings us to the same place that many of the other visions bring us to. It brings us to the end of time here on the earth. It brings us to that millennial kingdom, that thousand-year rule and reign of christ on the earth a period of time that's going to be marked by peace and prosperity and righteousness it brings us to that he says joshua there is a day coming when my anointed will rule and reign from this place the angel of the lord he assures joshua that that day is coming now notice a couple of things real quickly he says a day is coming notice he says a single day where he will remove the iniquity of this land And he will do that in a single day. Then he goes on in verse 10, and he says there's a day coming. Again, a single day coming when every inhabitant of this land, it says, will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree, which is an idiom of a time of peace, prosperity, comfort. Come, sit, let's relax. Not worried about the bombs that are coming to destroy us. Sit, let's enjoy one another in my nice backyard where I have my own fig tree and so on. The iniquity of the land that it speaks of being removed, it was indeed removed in a single day. And that was the day that Jesus died for the sins of the world. As this chapter closes, we realize this, that the far reaching effects of that sin will also be removed in a single day. And that is the day of the triumphant return of Jesus Christ on the earth when he will set up his throne in Jerusalem. And so verse 9 and verse 10, it speaks of the two comings of Christ. The first advent, when he came as a little baby, ultimately to make his way to a cross and die for our sins. And the second advent, when he will part the clouds and he will come and he will set up his throne there in Jerusalem. And this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. And I think in light of kind of this passage, I think it, it, it fit well today to celebrate communion. We're going to celebrate it anyway, but it seems entirely appropriate for us to do so. The Apostle Paul, he said this. He said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Think about that statement. You look back to his death at his first coming, even as you look forward and upward to his second coming and that's exactly what the Zechariah passage is talking about in those two final verses of that chapter and so today we are and we recognize that we are unworthy to come into God's presence even as Joshua was unworthy standing there with filthy garments between before a holy God who would do such a thing we recognize that we are unworthy but for those of us here, and I recognize that every one of us here has, but for those of us here that have entrusted our eternity to, to the work that Christ did 2,000 years ago, we can stand in the presence of a holy God this morning, not because of a righteousness of our own, not because we had a good week i did really well you know i i I did my memory verses i read my bible like you told me to do i was nice to people that old lady across the street i was the guy you know not because of the nice things or the good things or the righteous things that we have done this week but we can come into god's presence and we can come to this communion table looking back even as we look forward because of a righteousness that is not our own it's because of the righteousness that is his please keep in mind today as we celebrate communion of that great exchange that Charles Spurgeon spoke of. God made him who had no sin to become sin and to be punished for that sin so that we who had plenty of sin might become the righteousness of God. That's crazy, isn't it? And yet that's what the scripture teaches is our way of salvation. There's only one way, there's only one truth, there's only one life, and that's Jesus Christ. Let's pray together and then we'll celebrate communion. And Father, I do pray that for those of us that have been in Christ for some time, Lord, the reality of that truth, that statement about the great exchange would grab our hearts afresh this morning, the wonder of it, almost causing it to see it for the first time once more. And Lord, we pray for those that don't yet know Jesus. They know a lot about him, but they, they they have not yet begun a personal relationship with him. Lord, I pray for them too. Lord, I pray that you would open up their hearts. You'd bring them to the end of themselves. You would reveal that there's nothing they can do. They're they're a sinner. They've fallen short of your holiness and your glory. There's nothing they can do to remedy that except receive what it is you've done on their behalf. Would you just impress the simplicity of that message upon their heart today and bring them to the place of faith? So Lord, bless us this morning as we turn our heart and our mind back to the cross of Christ. The place where our forgiveness was won. For your glory we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.